Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 44, an emergency episode of the National Security Law Podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin. I am Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Weren't we just here? I mean, literally, I don't think it's been 24 hours. It hasn't been 24 hours. And it was already a busy week, Steve, but we've got more to talk about. I know. Obviously, Game 7. Game 7. Game 7. You know, there's a big game tonight. I mean, it's been the most exciting World Series ever. Oh my gosh. Much to your chagrin and my delight. Well, if you haven't yet listened to episode 43, you know how I feel about this. All right, so listeners, uh, I do recommend listening to (laughs) yesterday's episode, which will provide some useful context for what we're about to talk about on the law. But why are we here? So Bobby, it's 10 minutes to 1 central daylight time on Wednesday, November 1st. And there's some some real national security law news out there in the world. Two different things we want to talk about in this quick hitting emergency podcast. Right. So near the time, near the time that we were recording yesterday, we did not know it at the time, but a terrorist attack was unfolding in New York City, a place where both of us have, have deep ties. And have um, I mean, the lived. attack was right where I went to elementary school. Yeah, it's just it's, it's just awful. Uh, so the reason we're bringing this up now, because the, these tragedies do happen, we don't always... Uh, interrupt our our week to give you uh, the legal consequences of them. We're doing in this case because the president and some members of Congress have been raising the possibility of uh, Saipov, the the perpetrator of the attack. The Uh, alleged perpetrator of the attack. You know, yeah, you know, I'm just just saying. I got to say, I I, I know, I know, but I'm just saying. I shall. I will say the terrorist who did this uh, about whether he should be uh, taken into custody by the military as an enemy combatant, sent off to Guantanamo, etc. There are a whole cluster of issues, and they're all being thrown about in some pretty wild ways, including by the president, who is, I think, as we speak, still giving his uh, his uh, statements to the press, and has already said a few things that I think require some commentary and context. Steve. So, so the the quote that I'm reading, this is from the Washington Post transcript of this of this press conference or this whatever this this gaggle. Um, when a reporter asked whether Saipov should be sent to Guantanamo, Trump replied, quote, I would certainly consider that, yes. Send him to Gitmo, I would certainly consider that. Um, and, Bobby, we've also heard this morning from Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator John McCain, both of whom have made, I think, even more decisive comments about their view that Saipov, who I believe has already been taken into custody and maybe even presented. Um, I don't know about the oh, presentment. I hadn't, I hadn't seen that. I, he may I, not have been presented. Well, I know he was shot at least once in the in the gut, so I'm assuming actually might still be in a hospital. In but, a hospital. but under arrest and, 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 and with the FBI in so, Yeah, but he was arrested, arrested on the spot. But so McCain and Graham are both suggesting, precinct. right, detain him um, as an enemy combatant. I don't know if McCain and Graham are saying Gitmo as such. I mean, let's keep in mind, right, right. the one or the three, well, sorry, the two Two people who were arrested in the U.S. and held as enemy combatants weren't sent to Guantanamo. They were actually both detained at a South Carolina Navy brig. Right. We've never had an expatriation out of U.S. territory into Guantanamo. Let's let's map the issues first, and then let's start unpacking the uh, the precedents. But before we do, just 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 so that folks know what we're going to be covering on the on the podcast, the second development that has us sitting down for this emergency pod is further to something we talked about yesterday, speaking of Guantanamo, as part of the Al-Nashri Military Commission prosecution at Guantanamo, um, this morning the presiding judge, Judge Spath, ordered that General Baker, the chief defense counsel of the entire Guantanamo military commissions, um, be held in contempt and Bobby taken into custody and confined for 21 days and fined $1,000 for um, basically allowing the civilian defense lawyers on the Nashri team to recuse. Uh, that's that's certainly how he would frame it. He he is confined to quarters and uh, has phone and internet access to. So he's he's not like he's in the brig. He, no, no, oh, no, he's not. They're not putting him in Camp Seven with the uh, with the uh, you know. <laughs> it's certainly not but, that. All right, so we'll come back to that. Yeah. Why don't we start with so so it might help Bobby if we give listeners a legal overview and then maybe a policy reflection on 
what is possible with regard to sending someone like Saipov into military attention in general to Gitmo in particular, and then do we think it's a good idea? Great. Okay, so I want to I want to preface that with the like here are the different moving policy legal parts. Um, one question is. Is this a person who fits the definition of enemy combatant subject to detention for the duration of the armed conflict? And in, does does military detention authority potentially apply based on what we know of the fact pattern? Uh, is that true in general if he weren't in the United States? What about the fact that he was in the United States? What about the fact that he's been president in the United States since 2010? You may know. I do not. What his precise immigration status was. So he was lawfully on a visa. He's on a diverse on one of the, divis, the diversity visas. Okay, so he's a long-term visa-based resident. Long-term non-permanent resident. Right. Okay. So there's some wrinkles there, but what is what kind of uh, status does that give you? Uh, is that the same as a lawful permanent resident? So it's not quite the same as a green card, insofar as I think he can be removed from the country more easily. Mm-hmm. But the case law is clear that someone with that kind of not temporary lawful status due process rights. generally has full due process protections. Right. right. Okay. So and, and let's remember, readers who are not uh, lawyer or listeners who are not lawyers, remember that. The, the due process clauses, 5th and 14th Amendment, they don't refer to citizens in receiving due process law. They refer to persons, which is not how it's always done. That was a, a broader categorization. So this is someone who has due process rights, whether we like that or not. Those, have, those are not something that the executive branch can decide, well, let's give him or not give him due process rights. Okay, so there's that set of questions about whether he's even eligible for military detention, as has been discussed. There are AUMF scope issues. There's some factual issues. Um, it's not the only issue. When when Senator Graham spoke about this, he mentioned the importance of being able to interrogate him without mm-hmm. counsel being there to tell him not to answer questions and right. the like. And and I think, Steve, I think we both probably agree, that's kind of what what's really driving this is the interrogation interest. It's, cer- uh, it's certainly not the notion that Guantanamo is going to be faster or more efficient or more legitimate. Right. Okay, so here it's helpful, listeners, to distinguish between the, the government has many different in- interests that it needs to advance in a situation like this. There is a long-term disposition interest, you know, what's the most reliable and proper and sustainable long-term disposition. And that's where we get into conversations about civilian prosecution versus military commission prosecution versus, you know, removal to his country of origin versus uh, military detention. All of those are versions of long-term disposition with their own, you know, sets of issues. Then there's the question of immediate authority to detain. Now, that's this person's already in law enforcement custody, was arrested by NYPD within minutes after, after he was shot uh, and at some point was passed into FBI custody. Um, and I don't know if he's in a hospital now or otherwise, but he's effectively in federal law enforcement custody. Uh, then there's the distinct question from both of these involving short and perhaps long-term interrogation. And, of course, the traditional law enforcement model is you get questioned, but you get your Miranda rights first, and you, you're reminded you have the right to remain silent, you have a right to a, an attorney and all the rest. But, Steve, as, as we know from many prior episodes just like this, um, you could go a different way if you're the government. You totally could, right? I mean, so, I mean, sorry, keep going. No, no, I was just going to say that you know, the, the questions there are, A, does anyone read him Miranda rights? regardless of whether they're read to him or not, he's been living in the United States for seven years. I'm sure he's heard the phrase, you have the right to remain silent, and he's sort of mindful of these things. The real question is, does the interrogating official stop asking questions if and when the guy says, 
he wants a lawyer or doesn't want to talk? Or does the interrogation just continue on in sort of a, I don't really care that that's right. your view. We're going to keep asking you questions. Uh, and then related to that, does it get presented to a judge? Normally that's 48 hours as the sort of outer boundary. Um, of course, there's a complication here. If he's in medical treatment, that may that may create an extenuating circumstance, like the Chelsea bombing, you recall, from a little while back. Um, that person was, I think, out of it medically after being uh, captured and shot during capture or injured during capture in New Jersey. Faisal Shazad? Yeah. yeah. Uh, is that, no, was that uh, Shazad, I think, was that oh, was Times, Times Square. Square. I'm thinking about the guy who set the bombs oh, yeah. out yeah, yeah. in Chelsea and then, yeah. was, and then was caught in New Jersey. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Anyways, the point is there are a lot of different moving parts, and, and you shouldn't indulge an idea that there's just a binary choice. You go law enforcement with right. a maximum law and order TV show style approach, or you have to send this guy to Guantanamo, and then you can interrogate. Right. It's just not true. I mean, no, and it's, it's just a not, mix, right? And, and it's a mix in two different respects. I mean, you mentioned both of them, Bobby. I just want to crystallize it just to, just yes. to try in the, in, the, in the interest of concision, right? First, um, if you don't need to use his statements against him at trial, it doesn't matter whether you Mirandize him or not. I mean, as you were saying. That's right. This is entirely, Miranda and the Quarles public safety exception are entirely questions about if you want the ability to take what this guy said during your interrogation and use it as evidence against him at trial. Now, this to me shapes up like the underwear bomber type scenario. Right. They don't need this guy's statements right. to get him But the underwear bomber is a great example because in the underwear bomber case, Abdul Muttalib, right, FBI agents questioned him in the hospital mm -hmm. for about 50 minutes, 5-0, where it was public safety questioning under quarrels, where it was clearly, you know, we want to make sure there are no other attacks out there. You really were a lone wolf, et cetera. Um, and the district court eventually admits those unmirandized statements anyway on the ground that they were covered by the cross right. public safety exception. So when Lindsey Graham says we need to put him in military detention so that we can interrogate him, I call bullshit. Well, I think it's more complicated than that. I think that you're, you're right to say that you do not have to put someone in military detention First of all, you don't have to put someone in military detention at all if you want to do unmirandized, no lawyer interrogation. You you are certainly going to eventually, after a certain number of hours or maybe days, encounter uh, grave difficulties in using the fruits of that interrogation to convict the guy. But again, they're not going to need this guy's confession or statements to convict him, right? They, they have more than enough evidence. There's no question of needing evidence at this point. Um, so... The idea that you have to shift to military or otherwise is rather besides the point. Um, the, the the bigger question then is setting aside the politics, Steve, let's lead into the discussion of if they did decide for whatever reason, even if only to symbolize that, hey, he says he's linked to the Islamic State, we're mm -hmm. at war with the Islamic State, and we're going to come down heavy on this guy to make an example of him, a query which way that example would cut. But if they decided to go that route apart from the interrogation, let's talk first about whether it's even likely to be sustained as a legal matter right. to hold him in that capacity. And let's just assume he's not actually shipped out to Guantanamo. The geography won't matter. If he's captured in the United States, it'll be analyzed as a fact pattern arising in the United States. Yeah. So it seems to me that there are two different big legal questions. And let me see if you agree before I start processing them, right? Big legal question number one, assuming for the sake of argument that um, the AUMF applies to whatever his affiliation with is with ISIS, is there some reason why, as a non-citizen lawfully present in the U.S., the Due Process Clause might otherwise create a substantive limit on the government's ability to detain him? Do you agree that's the, the first question? Okay, so the, yeah, I mean, I don't know what sequence it goes in, but, but that's definitely okay, an issue. A yeah. question, right? Yeah. Um, does the government have the power to hold non-citizens lawfully present in the U.S., assuming they meet the substantive criteria of the AUMF? Yeah, right. The AUMF kind of looms okay. as a, a layer. And then second question, 
does he meet the substantive criteria of the AUMF? This is the question we have come back to so many times on this podcast about whether the 2001 AUMF covers ISIS. Now, some of our sort of more well-informed listeners might be saying, well, what about the fiscal year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, which of course has clearer language in it about detaining non-citizens who are part of associated forces? Bobby, we've talked about this before. The so-called Feinstein Amendment to the NDAA exempts citizens and anyone else lawfully present in the United States at the time of their arrest. I, I think listeners might get the wrong idea from the use of the word exempts. Yes, exempts it, from the NDAA. It basically says this statute doesn't cut one way or, or the, the other. other. This is a pure. This is a question purely about the 2001 AUMF, right. full stop. Right. Okay, so what order should we take those two questions I, in? I think let's take the, let's take the, what I think in some ways is the easiest or most familiar exam- question first. Is this guy organizationally affiliated with any group within the claimed armed conflict with al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and its associated forces construed by Obama and Trump to include the Islamic State. What do we know? We know that he left a note pledging his allegiance to ISIS. We know that uh, there's there's been some talk about how he seems to have drawn his inspiration from you know, ISIS distributed materials, although I've also seen people saying, well, you know, this is also the sort of thing that al-Qaeda puts out through Inspire magazine. Um, we have not yet seen any uh, government statements or leaks indicating that there's a belief that he was in communication with any actual ISIS personnel, um, though that's certainly possible. So we don't know. But let's assume for the sake of argument, well, let's, let's consider it both ways, Steve. A, let's assume that, in fact, he was in, in communication mm-hmm. with someone from the Islamic State so that this is fairly or at least arguably analyzable as an Islamic State operative type fact pattern. Then were the government to hold him as an enemy combatant, there will be habeas litigation. That question will be put. And then that case becomes the first one to finally enable a federal judge to weigh in on the question that is undergirding the military effort in Iraq and Syria all these recent years. Is the Islamic State really um, part of or within the scope of the 2001 AUMF. Now, Bobby, we talked before about why we don't think the John Doe habeas case, right, the U.S. citizen currently being held as an enemy combatant in Iraq, um, is necessarily a great vehicle for litigating that question. Would you have concerns about litigating the ISIS issue in the context of a non-citizen lawfully present in the U.S.? You mean, uh, is it a bad idea if the government wants to sustain the claim that the AUMF applies to this larger conflict? And you don't want John Doe to be your vehicle because he's a citizen and that's right. going to put it in the worst light. You know, this is hardly any better. It's right. a capture inside the U.S. of somebody who was lawfully present. I mean, you could argue John Doe is actually a better case for the government because he at least he's was captured. captured in the battlefield. Right. And so it looks more like the Hamdi case. Yeah. Neither one of these are neither one of these are good vehicles if the government would prefer not to get a bad ruling on the AOM. All right. So, so, there's, so, so, you know, you and I agree, I think I'm summarizing this correctly, yep. that there is this lingering massive elephant in the room open question about the AOMF and ISIS right. that would surely come up, yep. right, if this case were actually pushed as a military detention vehicle. And let me and so that's the best case scenario for the government right. that in fact that assumes is, that there's a connection. Yeah, that there that there is in fact at least a communications connection. Um, and and by that I don't mean that he's been clicking like on some some ISIS Twitter post, right? So if if it seems, you know, quite likely, quite possible certainly, what he is is he's inspired by but not directed and controlled by and not an agent of ISIS, then what you have here is a lone wolf jihadi who who is inspired by the Islamic State. Uh, I have a hard time imagining that the that the government lawyers want to go in and argue that that category of person uh, is within the scope of the AUMF. Right, because then you then you worry about losing it on both the facts and the law. Right. So, yeah. all right. Now, what about the fact that he's a non-citizen lawfully present in the U.S.? I mean, why don't we remind our listeners about the one case? 
we've had like this, right? So Ali Almari. Yeah, it's just like that. Right? It's, it's a name that's not well known, I think, outside of our bizarre little universe, right? Mm -hmm. um, Almari is the one non-citizen thus far who's been held as an enemy combatant. He's from Cutter, I believe. He's from a Cuttery National. Student visa. Student Bradley visa. Somewhere University, in Illinois, right? Peoria. Peoria? Okay. I think, I, I think that's Bradley. Okay. Um, yeah. He entered the country on September 10th, 2001, which was, I think, always one of the most damning yeah. facts in his case. Um, he's initially picked up on, on a material witness warrant, right. um, which is part of a civilian criminal process. The government uh, obtains intelligence to believe that he's a sleeper agent for al-Qaeda. They transfer him to military detention. He's transferred to South Carolina, mm -hmm. where he's held in the same Navy brig as Jose Padilla. His habeas case eventually, Bobby, gets up to the Fourth Circuit, the federal appeals court that has jurisdiction over Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, and in 2008, well, so first, a three-judge panel of the Fourth Circuit right, actually held that his detention was not authorized by the AUMF. Um, Judge Diana Gribben-Motz wrote an opinion about how the AUMF wasn't a sufficiently clear statement Right. And that Almari, as someone who was lawfully present, had a due process right not to not be detained, but at least to some kind of clear statement of affirmative detention authority. Right. And just to, for listeners who don't follow this stuff closely, the idea there would be that either a U.S. citizen or a non-citizen within the territorial United States would be differently situated with respect to the government's claim that the AUMF authorized their detention. The idea is that, yeah, that claim may be perfectly true overseas, but if Congress meant to authorize military detention within the United States, there's sort of a rule of interpretation that there ought to have been a clear statement to that effect, both to avoid the Non-Detention Act as to citizens and perhaps for due process issues. Details aren't important. The idea is it's it's a higher bar towards right. whether Congress meant to allow the detention. And indeed, so in the this is why this is why the second and fourth circuit split, for example, in Jose Padilla's case. All right. Um, now, I would just add, right, what happens after that three-judge panel decision, Bobby, is the Fourth Circuit at the government's request goes on bonk. Mm -hmm. And the full Fourth Circuit takes a fair amount of time, eventually oh. hands down, you might remember this, right, the 213 pages oh, it's it's of opinions. Just, it's all over the map. So the, the bottom line of the crazy on bonk Fourth Circuit decision is five of the nine judges voted, albeit on somewhat different grounds, that the government did in fact have the legal authority to hold Almari's enemy combatant, but a different group of five judges, only one was in both camps, thought that he was entitled to far greater process to establish that he was in fact who the government said he was. Um, that would have been a very big precedent, Bobby, except that as soon as the Obama administration came to office a few months later, um, they decided to indict Almari and transfer him to civilian criminal custody. The Supreme Court had granted cert to review the Fourth Circuit's decision. Once he was transferred and indicted, um, the Supreme Court vacates the Fourth Circuit decision and remands with instructions to dismiss. So there's literally no law. And, you know, if listeners are really itching to get into the weeds of this, I actually wrote an uh, a paper called Who May Be Held? Military Detention Through the Habeas Lens. It's a long <laughs> walk through a lot of this messy jurisprudence in the, in the Padilla case. And I think one takeaway from it is, all right, so clearly it's a train wreck and it could go either way in the future in such a case. Right. So maybe this will be such a case. In the, and I guess the key takeaway is no one should think it's clearly established. Either way. Yeah, even if you didn't have the AUMF issues. Like in that case, Almari, where the claim was, no, he was an al-Qaeda operative. That was a clean case on the AUMF front. And it was still close. And it's still a big mess. So there's a lot of legal uncertainty about 
wherever you held him, right. not whether so, you could. So, listeners, the takeaway is on the legality of sending Saipov into military detention, the short version is, one, it is just not clear, and two, there are two very different, although Bobby not completely unrelated, legal issues where if you're the government, you might actually really have second thoughts about using this case as the vehicle for settling one way or the other these legal issues. So, right, it's not that it would be clearly illegal. It's not that it would be clearly legal. It's that it would be very legally fraught. Right. And so this is an interesting question because ultimately this goes towards your long-term disposition, whether this would be sustainable over time, right? Because obviously they could do it in the the short term, and then there would be, no doubt, years of litigation in the meantime. So what would you get? So you you got the situation where you're told, well, maybe this is not opportunity to an option you can pursue but it's it's very fraught legally um as compared to what right so what are your other options and in the in the main other options first of all uh you might you might send this guy out of the country obviously no he's committed this horrible act um he's going to be in he's going to be incarcerated somewhere in u.s control for the rest of his life if not executed um should this and and right there why are we even talking about military detention, right? right? Which is explicitly a non-punitive, non-retributive, purely preventive while the hostilities last. If the hostilities end, you got to let people go. This is someone who obviously needs to be prosecuted. So, so Bobby, why not prosecute him in a military commission? Right. So that brings us, (laughs) let's quote, let's get the president's quote here. Now I'm, you have the transcript. You may have a better uh, read on this. I'm working off of a very useful uh, post that Ali Vitali and Jane Tim at NBC News put up uh, as the president's press conference was happening just a little while ago. Um, Let me find it. Uh, There's a quote here about criminal justice and its efficacy that is pretty remarkable. Okay, Trump, quoting from the article at NBC News, Trump argued that the court process for accused terrorists takes too long. Quote, we... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing already. <laughs> we, we also have to come up with punishment that's far quicker than the punishment these animals are getting right now. Yes, close quote. far quicker. Trump said prior to the cabinet meeting, quote, we need quick justice and we need strong justice much quicker and much stronger than we have right now because what we have right now is a joke and it's a laughing stock and no wonder so much of this stuff takes place. Steve, do you think he thought he was talking about military commissions? I thought he was. I mean, if he he what, has what we have right now is a joke and a laughing stock and is not getting anything done. That sounds like a perfect description of the Guantanamo military commission. So this is all in the context of saying that maybe he should send the guy to Guantanamo. You have to assume that what he's trying to say is the civilian criminal justice system right. is slow and unreliable and and, and a we, laughing stock apparently. It 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 blows my mind. Yes, right because. Uh, you, you know, I have a much more favorable view in general of the commission uh, system as an option than you do. But I think we both agree that whatever else you can say about it, it is it is cosmically, glacially slow because of all the frictions that it's ended and all the problems. The idea that you would want to channel someone that way right. instead of towards the civilian criminal justice system, which always gets the conviction, always moves expeditiously. The, I see where people might want to think about interrogation questions, but the idea that for disposition, you wouldn't have this guy convicted. Right. I mean, uh, let, let's put some numbers on the table, right? So in, in, I mean, Bobby is exactly right that he and I, you and I, right, disagree about the legal limits of what the commissions can and cannot do. We agree completely on the facts, right? And the facts are that in 15 years, the, Bobby, the commissions have obtained eight convictions, right? Most of those by plea agreement. Three of those convictions have been thrown out in their entirety on appeal. Two of those are still being challenged on appeal. 
by eight convictions in 15 years, and the biggest trial of them all, the 9-11 trial, is still in very early pretrial phases right now, seven years after it was restarted for the third time. We've got these guys, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin Ashib, these people responsible for the 9-11 attacks. They're still alive. They're, they're eating meals every day. They're not anywhere near day. trial. They're nowhere near their trial yet. Especially because of our second story. If they'd been prosecuted in civilian court. They'd be dead by now. They would, they would have been executed by now. Yep. Um, this is another attack within nearly within you know sight uh, or within sight when the towers were right. still there of the towers. We don't need the same thing happening. And, and that's why I say I don't, I don't want to make light of the like when I say they'd be dead by now, right? Like I don't think that that's I'm not trying to say like the system would have been vengeful, right? I'm saying that like the system would have worked. They would have been found. There, there's little doubt they would have been found guilty in a capital trial, and the appeals by now would have long since run their right. course, and they would have been executed. And so you know, listen, put aside the partisanship for a second, listeners, right? The real point here is if what you're looking for is harsh, efficient, legitimate punishment. There is absolutely no question what the best option as a policy matter is. That is a federal criminal trial in a civilian criminal court. So this is why it's important to tease out the disposition question right. from the interrogation question. Although, and, as and, and, we said, right, the yeah. interrogation question, I think, doesn't also also is, is a bit of a red herring. Right. So let's let's well let's talk about that. Right. So it's it's complex over the longer term, at least. Um, if interrogation itself is both a short-term and a long-term project, you know, if it's a if this were in the battlefield, if we're talking about some you know enemy fighter who's been captured in an, in some generic armed conflict setting, uh, certainly uh, for the even the most run-of-the-mill person, you want to try to find out some things. Now, if it's an international armed conflict and it's a POW, uh, you know, you're very limited in, in your ability to ask things. Uh, you can ask what you want, but you can't take negative steps against a person uh, when when those protections aren't applying because it's not a, a lawful. Combatant, right. Right. Um, you're, you're going to try to find out what you can. This is entirely apart from what methods you use. Right. We're not having that discussion no, no, here. It's just, it's just about whether you have yeah. to Mirandize him and whether you can continue to interrogate him after he yeah. presumably invokes his right to remain silent. So there's 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 short term interest, and here um, there's plenty of room for maneuver in the immediate short term because in the criminal law enforcement system we do have this idea of the public safety exception. Yep. And by the way, you only even care about needing to fit within the public safety exception of quarrels if you think it's important that you be able to introduce the resulting statements at trial right. as evidence against the Whereas person. Whereas when you've arrested someone, so we've talked before about the difficulties that terrorism cases pose when you've picked up someone at a very early stage toward the plot, right? This is not that case. This is a case where the guy right. was arrested literally at the end of a terrorist attack, caught in the act, right? Tons of corroborating yeah. physical eyewitness, you know, video evidence. Yeah, there's a reason I won't scene. say he's an alleged perpetrator. Well, he's the perpetrator. All right. But so so all this is to say, right, this is the last case where you're... So, so two different things need to be said. One, this is the last case where you're going to need to admit what he says when he's interrogated. Yeah. Two, even if you needed to... Right, the public safety exception to Quarles provides at least some leeway to continue to interrogate him after he invokes, right? right, and to still use what he says as long as it's in response to public safety questions against him. So here's where we may or may not disagree. So that makes it if, if the interrogation interest that Senator Graham and others have advanced is entirely about the immediate. Uh, round of questions once this guy comes to, I don't know if he's awake and, or, and so forth or not, um, then I, I think we're on the same page. There's no need to talk about military custody and the rest. You can ask whatever questions you need to. Uh, and by the way, you can have whoever you want to ask those questions. If you think the high-value interrogation group needs to be involved in this, absolutely. I, ho I hope they, they are brought in. Right. Um, the, the more interesting question is over time, right? Because what does happen if you are in the criminal justice system is quite apart from whether you're deciding to honor Miranda or not, there's presentment. 
within some reasonable time period. And you're only going to be able to drag that out so long, even if you even if there's a medical context to things that provides right, a little a bit of... a couple of days. At, at some point, one way or the other, as happened with Sarnayev, mm-hmm. even if the judge has to come down to the hospital to do a, a bedside presentment or arraignment, um, there is going to be some moment where there's a judge uh, injected into the relationship between the government and this person. And the judge is going to advise the person of their rights, will make sure that that person has appointed counsel, and will, to some extent, and the details here might get really murky, but to some extent, will be looking to ensure that if the person's invoking their rights, it will not necessarily be the case that the government can continue on with its I don't care that you don't want to talk. We're going to keep asking you questions. That It starts to get really muddy, I think, once you've been arraigned and presented. So I think the best and the fairest or putting the best light on what Senator uh, Graham is saying is, look, we may need to talk to this guy uh, unmediated by counsel for ISIS, uh, for understanding the Islamic State and what role it might play here uh, for a longer term. Now, that claim is much more sympathetic if there's reason to believe this guy was actually an ISIS agent. If he actually had, you know, right. traveled abroad, been right. a trainee, I begin to become sympathetic to that, at least that line of thought. But if he's a lone wolf? If he's a lone wolf, this doesn't make any sense anyways. You're, what are you even getting out of this? Probably not much. Now, I think Senator Graham might, if you were sitting here with us, might say, like, this is what we need to find out. We don't know. That's the kind of interrogation we need. And it might need to go on for weeks. might need to be months. The, and then you get to this irreconcilable tension, right, between the, the legitimate interests of the government to gather this intelligence and the fact that this is in the United States. It's a person who was here. This isn't an overseas combat zone. Um, you can't just isolate them while, meanwhile, um, their, their criminal proceeding may need to move forward. There's also the question of speedy trial. If ultimately you're going to prosecute the person and you knowingly, nonetheless, delay things by way of participation in the criminal process. Does that sound right to you? Is that the waterfront? Yeah, yeah I just, listen, I just don't think, first of all, that there's any indication. So, so in all of the cases we've had thus far, right, the government has, I think, never successfully argued to a judge that they've needed more than a couple of days, right, to, inter- to interrogate someone in circumstances like this. And I would just want to say, I- I'm not averse to the possibility that it could happen. But the burden has to be on the government in that context to go before a judge and ask for an exception, right? Maybe there ought to be a Quarles-like exception to the presentment requirement. You know, I'm of two minds about that, but at the very least, I think the burden has to be on the government to make the affirmative case as opposed to, oh, it's a terrorism case, therefore all bets are off. Right. I know. I think that makes a lot of sense. This is this reminds me of how in the Obama administration, which basically is the administration that was you know presiding over these cases and trying to sort it all out. After uh, after Abdul Muttalab, there was all this back and forth about making sure that they make as much use as they could and should of the public safety exception. And that in turn led to discussion about whether there needs to be maybe legislation to extend the presentment period to make it clear that there's some certain number of days. Many of our European allies uh, have such systems. And of course, you and I both know that anything that is raised along those lines can easily be and will be characterized as basically approving some sort of preventive detention authority with no judicial involvement and so forth for X number of days. You know, the French do things like this. There are other countries that do. It's a conversation we should have. I'm just yeah. saying that like the, the, there surely we can agree that the government can't just flip a switch and invoke it, that there has to be some affirmative basis why they think it's necessary. 
Bobby, I don't think there's any indication that we're there yet, and I can't imagine Senator Graham knows more than we do about that. So I think we've kind of given enough context for now, and it's important to bear in mind, too, there's, you know, there are raw feelings and, and raw politics playing out. We shouldn't assume that all of this talk is necessarily leading to anything like a, a, a policy initiative, but we're going to have to watch this one closely. I mean, this, is, this could potentially turn into something very challenging from a legal perspective very quickly. Um, okay, so... What about the military commission process? We talked about it, but we didn't really get into the weeds of what actually happened today that was, you know, almost worthy of the, uh, an emergency podcast in itself. So just to recap, right? So so a couple of weeks ago, there was this big story where the three civilian lawyers representing al-Nashri. Um, this is one of the other pending uh, military commission cases. Al-Nashri, among other things, is charged with being involved in the bombing of the USS Cole. So three civilian lawyers um, sought permission from the chief defense counsel of the entire military commission. That's Marine Corps Brigadier General uh, John Baker. Um, they sought permission to withdraw because they believed that there was an unsolvable um, ethical conflict that they couldn't describe publicly other than to suggest it came out of um, an inability to believe that they were having confidential communications with their client, that they were able to communicate with their client free of government oversight. Um, whatever the merits of that claim, the, the legal fight here has been whether the chief defense counsel has the authority to allow these lawyers to resign or whether the judge has to approve. Um, we had a long fight about this on our regular podcast this week. I don't want to relitigate that right. here. Yeah, right? You, you feel that he's got the authority. I feel that the trial judge has the authority. Right. And I think it just, I mean, there's, I, I, if we really wanted to go down the road, I could point you to the relevant statutory provisions that I think make it clear it's the chief defense counsel, but whatever. Um, the reason why this matters, everybody, is because one of the lawyers who resigned was Al-Nashri's so-called learned counsel. Um, there is a right under both the rules for military commissions, the Military Commissions Act of 2006, and probably the Constitution to be represented by a learned counsel in the capital case. Without this lawyer, Rick Kamen, um, Nashri has no learned counsel. And so presumably either, Bobby, his case can't go forward at all, or it goes forward with a baked-in reversible error from mm -hmm. the get-go. Right. Um, the response from the Air Force colonel who's presiding over this case, Colonel Spath, has been to try to compel these lawyers to return to Guantanamo. The civilian lawyers haven't. General Baker, of course, did. Um, and this morning, without actually putting General Baker on the stand, without actually having the hearing, Bobby, that you and I both thought would be one way out of this yesterday, yeah. um, Colonel Spath just held General Baker in contempt um, summarily um, with no hearing, um, without hearing from General Baker at all, and ordered him into confinement, right, not the brig, but confinement mm -hmm. in what I gather is days. General Baker's trailer at Guantanamo. It's his quarters. Right, for 21 days at Guantanamo um, with phone and internet access, but otherwise he can't leave his trailer. Right, so he's been confined to quarters for, uh, contempt. for, for three weeks for contempt. Obviously, uh, so the next step in the process within the strange world of the military commissions is the, the commission judge's finding goes before convening authority. Harvey uh, Rishikoff. Who is your friend in mind and for many listeners, uh, a beloved sort of familiar figure in the national security law community. Some of you listeners may not know that's what Harvey's current gig is. <laughs> uh, so Harvey's got the hot potato coming to him right now. Uh, this will be no surprise. Uh, it, the article uh, from Carol Risenberg indicates that uh, Harvey had already kind of provisionally approved that if something's to be done like this to Baker, if he's going to be confined, he should be confined to quarters with communications access, not thrown into the bridge. Um, so he's already engaged on it. And I expect we'll see a pretty quick turnaround. And one would imagine, 
and knowing Harvey to be a deal maker, one would imagine that there's some intensive negotiations going on. Look, I would hope looking to find some kind of solution. Oh, to, I disagree. To work this out. I, I think one would imagine that there is a habeas petition being drafted as we speak. Um, well, these things aren't incompatible. No, but I mean, so here, listen, there are, there are, Bobby, to me, three different legal problems here, leaving aside the optics for a second, which, by the way, are terrible. Um, here are the legal problems. First, not clear at all that under the substantive definition of contempt in the Military Commissions Act, what General Baker did even qualifies as contempt. Um, this is not an inherent contempt charge. This is a statutory contempt charge that actually lays out elements that I don't think encompass a lawyer refusing to comply with a court order. Um, but that's so that, that's a yeah. question. Legal question number one, is this even a proper application of the Military Commission Act's own baked in contempt charge? 10 U.S.C. Section 950T31, if you want to go read it for yourself. Who decides, like, where's the procedural pathway? Does that go to the Court of Military Commission Review? For, so, the, so, so, and then I, the DC so I want to get to the, to, the, to the posture in a second. But legal right. question number one is that, right? Legal question number two is, is General Baker even subject to the personal jurisdiction of the military commissions? The Military Commission Act says you're only subject to this chapter if you are an alien, unprivileged, unlawful, uh, un, an alien, unprivileged enemy combatant. Uh, do you have to fall within that? I mean, don't you? Isn't it enough that you're an officer of the court appearing in proceedings so in that if court? It's he is the if it's chief official. If it's inherent contempt, yes. But the statutory contempt, the statute says these offenses only apply. Oh, I see what you're right. So it's not at all clear to me. Could Spath just fix that by reform, like revising his order? To if be he thinks a, he has inherent contempt power, I suspect he'll say he does. Well, I don't know. I mean, listen. If you actually study the military commissions, there have been plenty of cases where these where the commissions have said that they don't have inherent powers that yeah. Article Three courts do. Yeah. So it's not obvious to me that the answer to that is yes. Well, I will say this, and you'll, you'll like this. If, if the answer to this ultimately is like, no, he de- the statute doesn't give him the ability to yeah. exercise this kind of uh, policing of his court's yeah. functionality. And in his statement today, he said, look, this whole thing will not work in light of the decision. You know, you've basically, the defense team has brought the entire ability of the thing to proceed to a halt. Yeah, yeah this, this is action. going to grind the questions to if, a halt. If he actually has no ability to police this, then that's just yet another reason why the commission system is, is, is completely screwed up, and ironically. Stuck. And stuck, right? Yeah. All right, and then legal question number three is, um, was the underlying decision actually, like, who's actually right on the legal question of the United States? Right, that's the part that interests me is, like, like what, let's get some fact-finding right, here. Who's actually, at the end of the day... Was somebody listening to these guys' well, conversations? And also, so, and, and did Baker have the authority without the judge's approval to allow these guys to resign? So Okay, so two layers to the merits. Yeah. Did, All right, so there are four questions. Yeah, yeah. There's the question of who has the authority. Does Baker get the last word or does, or does the judge have to yep. sign off? You think the former, I think the latter probably. But then past all that, sooner or later, somebody right. – well, actually, if Baker gets the last word, that'll be the end. We'll never have any kind of adversarial testing of, of the claim, right? Um, maybe. I uh, mean, you know, we'll see, I mean, we'll see which what happens. Which one reason why I think it's got to go to the judge. All right. So so what happens now is the million-dollar question. Um, so General Baker is now, I think you would agree, in the custody of the United States, okay. right, for purposes of the federal habeas sure. statute. Yeah, no. Um, so therefore, I think there's no question that the D.C. District Court and probably the D.C. Circuit would have habeas jurisdiction in a case brought by General Baker. But do they have to exhaust remedies by so the, appealing right. directly? So then, right. So you can't usually appeal a contempt citation. The usual mechanism in the courts to appeal a contempt citation is to seek a Rid of mandamus from Knowledge. the appellate court. Knowledge. I, I, I am to please. So um, what I suspect might happen is you might get dual-barreled legal action. Yeah. Where you get habeas in the district court, mandamus in the CMCR. I think you and I both know what the CMCR is going to say. Oh, yeah. Now they'll back the judge. Right. Um, and so this, either way, all roads lead to the D.C. Circuit. And quickly at that. Uh, what of us? All right. But can I just say one last thing? Yeah, right? yeah. So um, listen, I don't know who's right about the underlying 
you know, fact pattern or legal issue animating this mess. Here's what I do know, right? This is a proxy. This whole sort of, the reason why this story, Bobby, I think is so interesting is this is a proxy for the dysfunction of the military commissions writ large. And it would be an interesting enough story if it were happening in the abstract. But on the same day that you have Senator Graham, Senator McCain, and to some degree, President Trump saying, hey, look at Gitmo as a model of function and efficiency and process. Yeah, I know. It's a mess. You know, it's a mess. This is not what anyone signed up for. Um, and so however this is resolved, I just think it illustrates why Gitmo, whatever its legal limits are, whatever its jurisdiction is, is just politically toxic. I, th- I think you're right about that. It's a, it's a, insofar as you're, you're saying that the military commissions have year after year for, you know, the past, what, 16 years now, uh, proven to be beset by endless frictions that make it a poor substitute for civilian criminal process if you have that option, which you don't always, but when you do, uh, it is it is a bit foolish to think that right at this moment with with uh, Saipov that we need to be trying to trying to front load the commission. So system. so let's guys keep your nuance about you, keep your what's about you, keep separate issues separate. Um, and you know, for those who are trying to figure out the right answer to the Saipov situation, you know, reasonable minds, Bobby, might disagree about whether Gitmo is legally on the table and whether military detention is legally on the table. I think what there really ought not to be much debate about is there's no reason to buy the president's suggestion that the civilian criminal justice system is a laughing stock and somehow incapable of dispensing efficient and fair justice in a case like this. No, that's right. Now, should we close real quick, because we do have to move on to our actual other plans for the day. Oh, yeah, we were actually going to do stuff now, today. There's a World Series, but I, I just noticed the AP's top 25 preseason college basketball poll has dropped. That's what you want to talk about right now? Yeah, as our trivia, rather than rather okay. than saying that the so World Series will so be who awesome. Are the, who are the top five? Uh, Duke, number one. Michigan State, number two. Arizona, number three. Kansas, number four. Kentucky, number five. That's original. Where's Texas? Okay, so this is what I want to say. I find this outrageous. They have A&M. Love our friends down the road. They're 25. Texas isn't in the top 25, despite beating A&M already this year. We've already beaten them in this uh, this fundraising uh, Hurricane Harvey relief game that went on the other night. How dare they not count an exhibition game that didn't count toward anything in the polls? So you'd weigh things other than head-to-head? Yes, like quality of the roster and, you know, prior history. And So you, you'd put the on-paper, qual- your your perception of quality of roster ahead of a head-to-head performance? If head-to-head I find head-to-head to be the most telling indication of quality of the roster. If the head-to-head game actually counted, I might be with you. No, I, I think that you can't discount head-to-head. I think it's part of what's wrong with the whole ranking system. Yeah. Watch for OU and Oklahoma, right? See, I mean, see, that's and, the same thing. You know, Ohio State and Oklahoma. I'm sorry, yeah, sorry. State. Oh, you, right. So, so guys, listeners, right? I mean, this is this is this is why we get into trouble on this podcast. Here, we just had like forty minutes of actual useful <laughs> commentary, and now we're fighting about whether an exhibition game should really factor into. It's part of rankings. our shtick. We got to have first of all, we got to have more to disagree about. Yeah. Secondly, no, we, we don't. We have to have more uninformed opinions. Ah. Well, that's true. We have plenty of those when it comes to sports. So, so <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners are saying, it ain't just sports, guys. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we sort of hope that this is the last time we're going to have to do this until our regularly scheduled window next Tuesday. Um, but, guys, you can obviously follow the, the news on this. You can follow both of us on Twitter. Bobby is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. The podcast is at NSL Podcast. If you liked what you heard, 
Um, leave us a review on Facebook. If you didn't, um, review another podcast on Facebook. And and please uh, spread the word. We would love to get some more listeners. And so if there are people you know that might appreciate it or if you can tweet about it, anything like that, even if you want to criticize, jump in there, but, but make it part of the conversation. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe out there. Adios.